And what a glorious time of the year it is. Go tell it on the mountain. Tell it everywhere. Society lets us do that now. Most of the time, Jesus is just ignored. <laughs> and now we get to talk about him everywhere. How wonderful. From Macy's to the local gas station. Here, silent night, holy night. Son of God loves pure light. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. What great societal bliss we are in. It's all about Jesus. Or is it? Satan is crafty. We know that. Are we all celebrating the same Jesus? Hmm. One Christmas carol asks the question, what child is this on Mary's lap is sleeping? And it's a good question. Really good question. What child are they thinking about? Which child are we telling on the mountain? Jesus, of course, remains quite controversial in American society. Who was he exactly? Do we all embrace the same Jesus? I don't know if you're listening and you came in here today, you're in overflow room, you might be wondering that, decided to check back in church this time of year. We're glad you're here. Be thinking about that because how you answer the question about who is Jesus, that will determine where you live forever and ever, all eternity, by answering that one question. Every other question that you're ever going to be asked, in one sense, doesn't matter. This is the one that matters. Who is Jesus Christ? And who have I accepted him to be in my life? Please be thinking about that. That's so important for you. Did you know that even in New Testament times, Satan was busy sowing seeds of different Jesuses? That's a hard word to say, Jesuses. Wanted to throw the church off track, get them to <clears throat> say <coughs> they were believing in Jesus, <coughs> but a different Jesus. With a bit of sarcasm, I think that there is sarcasm in Scripture. Paul wrote these words in 2 Corinthians. If someone comes into your assembly and preaches a different Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you did not receive, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Now, that was not a compliment. He was correcting them. Someone came along and preached a completely different gospel in Jesus. The Corinthian church had no problem with that, but they should have had a big problem with it. We shouldn't be teaching or allowing to be taught or joining hands with any group, any church, any organization that gets the question of the identity of Jesus wrong really should be one of those core convictions you have in your heart, not a peripheral teaching, but right at the very heart of what it means that you're a Christian. This is kind of gut check time for us. You don't mess with the true Jesus. We don't allow him to be tweaked or adjusted because he's already the way God wants him to be. Perfect. Instead, we are to love him. What does love mean? It means we're loyal to him. We're loyal to him because of all that he did for us. Indeed, as I said, what we think about Jesus and what you believe about Jesus should be foundational to everything else about your faith, about your religion. In fact, we're going to talk today about a confession of faith that if you don't make that confession, A, 
you shouldn't be allowed to be a member in any church. But B, more importantly, you'll never make it into the kingdom of heaven. And when you die, if you anticipate going to heaven without this confession of faith, God will not accept you. That confession started one day in Jesus' life, actually about one year before Jesus made it to the cross. And today we're going to read about it and we're going to talk about it. It's one of the better known passages of scripture in the life of Jesus, but one we need to know well. And it's in the Gospel of Matthew, if you turn there, chapter 16. And I'm going to read from verses 13 to 21, just so you can kind of see the whole context. But my comments will only go down to the beginning of verse 17. So it's Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17, but I'll read a little further. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock. Now, we Protestants believe what he means by that is not the Pope in Rome, but we believe it's the confession that Peter just finished making. I just wanted to interject that so you understand. <laughs> upon this rock, this confession of Christ, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed on earth. And then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And actually, go down to verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Of course, Peter didn't like that answer, and he took him aside. We're not going to go that far. As you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what are called the synoptic gospels because they follow the chronology of the life of Jesus more similarly than John did. We believe John's gospel was written fourth and last, and it was meant to sort of fill in the holes where the three other gospels uh, did not bring out all the remembrances of the life of Christ. For example, John's gospel covers the early Judean ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, which the other three gospels do not. John centers his gospel around certain sign miracles that pointed to the conclusion he puts at the end of his gospel that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in that, you will have everlasting life. So John's gospel is just as historical but these three synoptic gospels follow the Galilean ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they all show that right at this point was a major turning point in the life and public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Major turning point in the ministry of Jesus. Anytime you take a life of Christ course or anything like that, you need to realize this was kind of where Jesus was leading his disciples up to. He gave them a quiz. He gave them an important test. When they passed it, he began to reveal to him, to them truths he had only hinted at before. And that was that when he arrived in the capital city of Israel, 
which is Jerusalem, he was not going to be crowned Messiah and kick out the Romans. Rather, what was going to happen to him is he was going to be, what? Killed. And he even specifies the crucifixion. You're right. Peter didn't like that answer, took them aside, rebuked him. But this is what the Messiah had to do in his first visit to Israel. That's not how it will be at the second visit of Israel. But Peter didn't know his prophecies all that well, got them confused and believed that at his first visit, he should be doing what he's going to do at his second visit. Not so. The first visit, the Messiah was to be the suffering servant, and so Jesus was. And he offered his body a sacrifice for us. Oh, how blessed is our Savior, right? So for the past two and a half years, Jesus had been engaged in a public ministry, showing to national Israel, I am the Messiah. Look at my powers. Look at my ability over nature. Look at my command over the diseases. And yes, in a few cases, even over death. And repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom, for the kingdom of God is drawn near, just as John the Baptist has told you about, just as many of you were baptized in water in the Jordan River to get you ready for me. I'm the king. I'm here. But they did not repent. And though they were astounded with the miracles, it didn't change their heart. And so now Jesus is alone with his 12 disciples. If you read prior to this, you can see he's already made a couple of attempts to try to get alone with his disciples. He wanted to teach them privately without all the crowds pressing in around him. And he wants to be alone with them in order to teach them privately. This chapter, indeed, this very text, is where the disciples' faith in Jesus as the Son of God takes on a clear and an unmistakable confession of faith. Yes, prior to this, they saw him still the waves and the water in the ocean, and they asked, who is this that even the winds and the water obey him? They already had an inkling. But here, the confession takes on a formal conclusion kind of manner. And so the proposition for today, for you and me, in this message is simply this. This is a confession all followers of Jesus must make. And we need to reject the false Jesuses and embrace the true one only. You look at this text and we always look for a way to divide it in a way that is natural to the way a Bible text presents itself. We follow the main verbs. We follow the main actions in a passage. And that's the little trick behind what preachers do. If you do it right, you'll divide it based upon the way the writer kind of put it out, and then you develop points that are based on it. Sometimes that's very easy, and sometimes that's very hard when you're preaching. Well, right now, it neatly divides into two halves based on two questions that are given to the disciples, and the two answers the disciples give back. These two halves flow from the simple questions, right? Who do people say I am? Now, he's not talking about the Pharisees. They already said he had a demon. He's talking about the general people, the Jewish people. He's not even talking about the Gentiles because remember, Jesus and his ministry barely ever left even just the borders of Israel. His ministry, he, he himself said, I was sent to the lost house of the sheep of Israel. So he spent his life in Israel. All those ridiculous reports from the second century about Jesus visiting India and learning from the gurus, that's all, that's just laughable. Every historical account has Jesus remaining in Israel. So you want to know, who do the people say I am? And then the second question, but who do you say I am? Anticipating that the two answers would be different. 
So that's our outline. First, we learn the wrong Jesuses. <laughs> and then we learn the right Jesus. Verses 13 through 14 is the wrong, and 15 through 17 is the right. First, the wrong. Look again at verses 13 and 14. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking the disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, and they give four answers here. We'll come to them as we go. The place of this discussion between Jesus and his disciples, verse 13 says, was as they were approaching the city of Caesarea Philippi. Not the Philippi or Caesarea that's by the ocean. This Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi was located 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. The city itself was built on a large plain, about 1,150 feet in elevation, kind of at the foot of the highest mountain in the region, which is Mount Hermon, often a snow-capped mountain because it's 9,200 feet in elevation. Despite the beauty surrounding it, Caesarea Philippi, that region, was largely a pagan area in Jesus' day. And it's up at the extreme northern end of what would be considered the land of Israel, near what the Old Testament territory of Dan would be, the farthest point north, actually today bordering Syria. You hear of the Golan Heights, that's somewhere near there as well. So Christ really had journeyed up north, and he had isolated his disciples from the crowds. He wanted a time of quiet reflection, perfect opportunity to pop the big question. <laughs> Not, will you marry me? <laughs> but in a sense, right? Are you loyal to me to death? Do you understand who I am? There's, there's a parallel there. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, Jesus asked this question, please notice, not of Peter only, but to all 12 disciples. We know that because if you look down at verse 14, it uses the third person plural verb. They said, they responded. So Jesus asked this big question to set up a contrast. Popular opinion versus you guys, my disciples. That's a great setup for us. What's the popular opinion of Jesus around us? What's your conviction today? We're getting to that. Jesus refers to himself with a certain title there. Do you see it? The Son of Man. He has used that title of himself many times prior to this, and it will be his favorite title for himself in the verses that follow this. No surprise there. Why did he use it? Well, it was a veiled way of referring to himself as the Messiah. It's a title that comes, most scholars believe, from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where it says the Son of Man seen in Daniel's vision comes up to the Ancient of Days who's sitting on the heavenly throne. Who's that? God the Father. And he receives from this one, Ancient of Days, a kingdom that will never end, the Messiah's kingdom. And thus the Son of Man was none other than the Messiah. Jesus understood that. At this point, we're not sure the disciples knew that. The first Jesus was asking, what's the common Jewish opinion of me? Who do people not think that I am? There's no way they could read his mind or their minds. But who do they say? As they were listening in the crowds and people gathered around and they heard the debates. There's a debate about Jesus in John 7, for example, if you want to follow up and read that one. There are other debates that were going on about Jesus all the time. Every time he did a miracle, people were like, is this the son of David? Who is this? And the debate would ensue. Who are people saying that I am? Ah. Four answers. Answer number one. First, some say 
And I think this one was given first because maybe this was the most popular answer. I don't know. John the Baptist. Some say you're John the Baptist. You say, well, how could they conclude that if John the Baptist by this point had already had his head chopped off? Well, because this opinion of Jesus was that he was a raised from the dead John the Baptist. This rumor may have even started with the fears and guilty conscience of King Herod, who according to Matthew chapter 14 and verse 1-2 is thinking about this. John was killed because of something that Herod had ordered. And so he might have feared that in his own conscience. But that answer was definitively a wrong answer. Now, if somebody thought of you and me as John the Baptist raised from the dead, you might feel like that was kind of a compliment, wasn't it? I mean, someone came along and said, you know, I think Pastor Leek is John the Baptist raised from the dead. I might kind of go like, yeah. I might come down the aisle with a little carnal strut, you know. But that's not good enough for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's way too low for him. The disciples continued their report. Second, others say, Elijah. Man, that would be good too. Elijah. Yeah. I'm going up in a chariot of fire. Why that? Well, because verses like Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5 had taught the Hebrew people that before the day of the Lord came, Elijah would appear back in Israel again. How could that be? Because he never died physically. He was snatched up body and whole the way believers will go up in the rapture. Oh, dear God, may we soon have the rapture, please. But again, this answer was definitively wrong. And it was not one Jesus was too excited about. The third answer is some say Jeremiah. Now, this one's a little harder to comprehend. Uh, Only Matthew of the three mentions this point of view. Why Jeremiah, not like, say, Samuel or Isaiah? Perhaps it was because Jesus' message of doom upon the cities of Israel was similar to Jeremiah's. Some also equate Jeremiah with certain actions that were taken in Jeremiah's day that may come back in the end times as well, such as hiding the Ark of the Covenant and certain speculative things like that. I really don't know. There are a number of possible reasons Jeremiah is listed. But again, case of mistaken identity. The last answer is one of the prophets. Um, If you went to Luke chapter 9 and verse 19, it's even more specific. One of the prophets of old has risen again. Okay. Clearly, a lot of folk were impressed with Jesus' ministry. They saw him doing the kinds of things that they had read about in kindergarten. Oh, wait, they didn't have kindergarten. They had had, since early on in their life, in synagogue school, when they were reading about the old, old stories they had in their Bible about the prophets. See, you and I forget sometimes when we read our Bibles and we say, oh, all of that stuff happened so long ago. How do we know it's any good for the modern age? That people living in Jesus' day thought that day was the modern age. And they were like, yeah, this stuff happened a long time ago. How do we know it happened? Uh, It's called faith, but there's also reason that's behind the faith. There's also historical evidence behind it. The scriptures are certainly accurate in what we know we can prove from them. Jesus had proven to be more than a mere rabbi. He was clearly something greater than the other 
dudes that were walking around and teaching their disciples. Man, there was something special about this Jesus of Nazareth. There, there were hundreds of rabbis teaching all around Israel in the days of Jesus. They didn't get the attention John the Baptist and Jesus got, an attention that flew out of the land of Israel and spread all over the world. There's a reason why we talk about those two and not others. What they did was, it was just so remarkable, miraculous. It had to be talked about. People had to discuss it. When you showed up for dinner in a Jewish home, you talk about political debate these days. Man, imagine them talking about that. Well, who do you think that guy from Nazareth is? Woo! And tempers would flare. But who was Jesus exactly? Well, they still did not get it, at least the Jews. Did you notice that all four of these answers were similar, at least in certain respects? All four attributed to Jesus supernatural powers. All four believed that he was a prophet sent by God. All four saw him as a connected to the Messiah in some way, a forerunner. All four connected Jesus to the kingdom in some way. Hmm. But none of them described Jesus as who? The Messiah, the King, the Son of David. God in human flesh, not one of them. Why not? Well, in part because Jesus didn't set up his ministry the way a military victor would. The Jews really did expect the Messiah to be a military leader, to go to Jerusalem, stare down the mighty might of Rome, and defeat them. Remember, in the centuries previous to this time of Jesus, there were things like the Maccabean Revolt, where the military of Israel, the Hebrews, had taken on the Greeks or whoever else was in power. They had won some battles. They'd lost two. But they understood that if Israel was ever to be returned to glory, somebody of faith had to rise up and fight and show that the hand of God was with them, as in the days of old. Not Jesus. None of his ministry was directed towards ousting the Romans. In fact, at times he talked about obeying Caesar, right? Rendering unto Caesar the things that were Caesar's. Oh my. Jesus wasn't even winning over the majority of the Jewish people onto his side. Many of them from town to town were rejecting him. What kind of a Messiah is that? Most people don't want to stick their neck out and say, I believe in him. I, I believe in him. If other people around them are not, right? It takes courage to do that. It takes genuine faith to say, I believe in him, even if you don't, even if everyone in my family, even if everyone in my town doesn't. I believe he's the Messiah. Well, that, takes, that takes some certainty. Yeah, they might have thought Jesus was someone great, good teacher, miracle worker, but for Jesus, that was not good enough. None of these lesser opinions were satisfactory. Jesus rejected all four of them. He is very unimpressed here, please notice. The lesser views of Jesus just won't cut it. You have to have a higher view of Jesus if you want to be accepted by God the Father. 
Did you know that not only among the first century Jews, but throughout church history for centuries, Satan continued to throw false ideas about Jesus at the church to see if any of them would be accepted. And some of them were accepted by parts of the church and led them astray. Yes, indeed, false Jesuses were constantly being thrown at the church. When you read church history, you might think like, wow, the story of church history is almost the story of watching all of these heresies being thrown at the church and then seeing how the true church responded to them. Even by the end of the first century and into the second century, the church rejected the Gnostic Jesus or the Docetic Jesus. Gnosticism, which was a philosophical position that believed the spirit world was pure and good, but whenever we got the physical universe and the physical planet, everything that you could touch and see and that was physical was actually the product of foolishness or evil on the part of the gods or a god or a lesser god. But when Gnosticism came into contact with Christian teaching, there was an attempt at a blend. And in that blend came a heresy. And that heresy said that nothing physical could ever be good. That means that whoever Jesus was eternally as the Son of God, he could never have taken on a human body. He could never have taken on flesh and blood. Because if he did, he couldn't be pure and he couldn't be good and we couldn't worship him and he couldn't, he couldn't be all that the Bible says that he is. So they had to reject his virgin birth. They had to reject his sinless life. He's just a phantom or a spirit, right? He certainly could never have died on the cross. And any blood we talk about being poured on the cross had to be, well, it had to be a trick. And then there was no resurrection from the dead, much less an ascension of a body into heaven. Same with the docetic Jesus. Jesus was an illusion. That word comes from the word to seem to be something. Jesus only seemed like the God-man. He wasn't actually God walking around in a body. I mean, who would believe that? 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 is an attempt at refuting an early form of Gnosticism that was creeping into the churches that John the Apostle wrote to there in his first letter. And there it says, he gives them a test. He says, if you want to know the spirit of God or the spirit of error, if you want to know the spirit of God or the spirit of the Antichrist, I'll give you a test. Every spirit that confesses, interesting, that confesses that Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, has come in the flesh is from God. If you believe the eternal good Son of God in His Spirit has become a human being in the flesh, then you're from God. And if you don't, you're not from God, and you're the spirit of the Antichrist. Well, that was a great and accurate doctrinal test for first and second century believers facing a heresy that would have killed the gospel and stopped the church and ended the progress of Christianity. Well, that wasn't the only heresy. I'll give you a few more a little faster. The church also had to reject the view called patripassionism the false belief that the Father and not the Son only was killed on the cross because the Father and the Son are not two distinct persons. They're exactly the same person. So if you believe they're exactly the same person, first of all, how does the Son talk to the Father if the Father's not the Son? A little bit of a problem there. But then you've got to have the Father going to the cross and dying. 
But it's only Jesus who suffered on the cross. Do you remember what he uttered from the cross to the Father in Luke 23, 46? Father, what? Into your hands I commit my spirit. Two distinct persons. The church also had to expose what some called modalism or Sabellianism, the belief that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not three distinct persons, but are three characterizations or modes of the same God, the same person. God takes on different modes of appearance at different times. So in Old Testament times, he presented himself as a father during the life of Jesus. That same God presented himself as a son. But in the church age, that same God, that same person, put on, took off the hat of the son and put on the hat of the spirit and said, I'm the Holy Spirit. But he was not three distinct persons. He was one, so they said. And of course, that denies the Trinity. It denies the facts of Scripture. And it makes Jesus not the distinct Savior who could then make an offering to the Father by the power of the Spirit. So it destroys the gospel. It destroys the way of salvation. And it denies Jesus his unique role as the only begotten one of the Father come to give glory to the Father. Another ancient heresy was adoptionism. The belief that Jesus was born a mere man like you or me but he ended up living such a righteous life that eventually God took note of him and said, now this one is a little special, a little more special than the others. I think I will adopt him into being my son. And they debate when that happened. Did it happen at his baptism? Did it happen at his birth? Did it happen at his resurrection? And they take some of the verses of Scripture and twist it a little bit to mean something it doesn't mean. And lo and behold, Jesus became the Son of God. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he was eternally the son of God and he became a man. <laughs> the exact opposite, you see. And so 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, verse 8 states, the son of God appeared in this world to destroy the works of the devil. That means he was already the son of God and then he came and he appeared in the world and then he destroyed the works of the devil and then he went back to the father, always being the son of God. Another false belief was tritheism. Muslims still try to slander Christians as believers in tritheism. The idea that we worship three gods. The Father, he might be standing over here. The Son, he might be standing over there. And the Holy Spirit over there. Not three persons in one God, but three what? Three gods. Maybe they were floating around in the pantheon of God somewhere up there in the universe and they found each other, and they said, you know what? We think a lot alike. Why don't we form a posse? Now, maybe it could have been four or five or two. It just happened to be three. And you Christians got that all wrong, and we Muslims, we're the only ones that believe in the pure monotheism. No, that's not true. It's not what Christians have never believed in three gods. Jesus in John 10, 30 said, I and the Father are one refers to an ontological oneness. And then, of course, there was the very disruptive and very famous and long-enduring Arian heresy. Jesus was not God, the Arians said. Rather, Jesus was, he was great. He was the son of God. But what, what the Bible means by that is he was a created being, like an angel. Oh, I mean like a very great angel. 
you know, like the very first angel God ever made, so great that God, after making this first angel, said, you know what? I'm going to use you to help me make the rest of creation. That's how great he was. Not good enough for the Son of God, sorry. Jesus was never created. Jesus never had a beginning. You can't be almighty God as Jesus is and says so in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8. He is almighty God. You can't be that and be an angel. That's a false representation of Jesus. Who promotes the Arian heresy today? Do you know? Jehovah's Witnesses. And they believe they're being faithful to Jehovah, the one, and even to Jesus. You know, he, I was witnessing to Jehovah's Witnesses one day, and I said, but the Bible does say that um, Jesus is Almighty God. In Revelation 1.8, that whole passage says he's Almighty God. And they turned there, and he said, no, that's referring to the Father. I said, but Jesus is talking. He says, I am the Almighty. He said, I am the Alpha and Omega. How about that? He's the eternal God. And they acknowledged that Jesus was saying those words. They just didn't give Jesus credit for those words. He said, when I say that I am the Alpha and Omega, what he was really doing was talking for the Father. He didn't mean himself. I said, well, then why did he say I am the Alpha and Omega if he meant the Father was the Alpha and Omega? This is a little confusing, don't you think? And I wouldn't let him get away with it, so I took them to later in the chapter in Revelation where Jesus was talking to John and he said, I was dead and now I'm alive forevermore. He said, was that also referring to the Father? Did the Father die on the cross? Of course, they quickly changed the subject because they don't answer questions. They're just trained to respond to certain ones and if they don't know the answer, they run and bring another guy along. Even Islam, even Islam, five hundred years after Jesus died. Please register that somewhere in your understanding of history. 500 years after Jesus died and was raised, that prophet came along and said, Jesus is not the son of God. He was just a prophet. Now he was a sinless prophet and we do revere him, but he's just a prophet. Well, first of all, 500 years after the facts happened, who are we going to believe, you or the apostle John who said in 1 John, I touched him, I heard him, I ate food with him, I lived with him. He is the eternal God, come down and be flesh. Who are you going to believe, the guy that sat with him or a guy 500 years afterwards? Just from a common sense point of view, I mean. Beloved, there are many false representations of Jesus in the ancient church and today. And here's what I want you to know and feel. The faithful church must reject them all and must do it purposefully. We must have courage. So let's go to the second half, the true Jesus. The true Jesus in verses 15 through 17. I lost my spot. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? You understand that when he asked that question, there's a measure of dissatisfaction with the previous answers. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I don't know if you highlight in your Bible, but if you do that kind of thing or you underline, that's a good one to do. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. This is the second and the more important question, the adversative conjunction that gets translated but draws a very sharp contrast, and the pronoun you in the Greek sentence is emphatic and forward, 
And so it literally would be, but you, who do you say that I am? And look who spoke up first. The man who sunk in the sea. Remember him? The man God had, to, uh, Jesus had to say, oh, ye of little faith. He's given his full name here, Simon Peter. Peter had many shortcomings, failures, but here there is no hesitation in his answer, no delay and no doubt. The King James translation sounds more majestic. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter's answer is categorically different from all the other answers. Peter gave the right confession. Peter gave what Jesus was fishing for. You are the Messiah, the Christ. That means he's the king. You are the son of God, the son of the living God. That means you are of one nature with the Father. Peter steps forward from among the twelve and he declares, Jesus, you are not one of those figures in the Old Testament that might appear in the end times. You are that one. And I have no doubt about it. The answer can only mean Jesus is divine. He is in a class all by himself. When we say that Jesus must be confessed as the eternal divine Son of God, we're not saying that because we are narrow-minded. We are saying that because Jesus is narrow-minded about his own identity. He knows exactly who he is, and any other statement about who he is that is not who he is is wrong. And we are not more noble and intelligent and educated and open-minded for entertaining ideas about who Jesus might be to make modern man feel good about himself? We're just here to express loyalty to the one who knows exactly who he is. If he's not satisfied being a prophet, even the greatest prophet, we can't be satisfied with that answer. If other people were coming to announce the arrival of the Messiah, they were coming to announce him. All of that other stuff and the acclaim and the running before the king and all of that, all that hoopla that would attend the king, that was all for him. It's his glory. It's his credit. We have to confess him like Peter confessed him or like Martha, ladies. For all the times we pick on Martha for being a little too busy and not being like Mary, right? And sitting at the Lord's feet and learning. How about Martha's confession in John eleven twenty seven? Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Sound familiar? Even he who comes into the world. She believed in the eternal sonship of God. Jesus himself confessed this at his own public trial before the ruling body of the Jews as he was being condemned to die and the high priest put him under oath, adjured him and said, tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Mark 14, verses 61 and 62. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? 
verse 62, and Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. If you don't believe it now, you'll believe it when you see me in full glory. And the Jews understood what Jesus meant by calling himself the Son of Man and coming on the clouds of power. Because next, the high priest ripped his clothes and accused Jesus not of a lesser crime, but of blasphemy, deserving death. You have heard it yourself, the high priest said. He has called himself equal with God. The Messiah, that title, literally the anointed one, referring to the one anointed as the eternal king of Israel to take the throne of David forever and ever, used in Daniel 9, 25 and 26, Mashiach, the prince who is to come. Peter is confessing that you are that one. And Jesus was owning that title for himself, that second title, the son of the living God. It's actually an appositional grammatical relationship to the first. The one who is the Christ is also the son of the living God. And he is not just any God. He is the living God. Why that title? Because he's not a deaf and a dumb idol who can do nothing. He lives. And he is to be feared. Hebrews 10.31. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Who cares whether you fall into the hands of an idol? Peter could not have ascribed to Jesus a higher title on earth. Jesus shared in the very nature of God the Father. Jesus is not a son of God the way you and I might be called or someone who walks along the street and knows that they've been created by God. And so in some lesser sense, as just being a creation of God, we are all children of God, as some of the poets say. That's not it. He is not an adopted son of God as you and I are in Christ being adopted into his family and now sharing in the inheritance of the only begotten Son of God, we who do not deserve it, but were adopted by grace, he is not that kind of a Son of God. No, he is the John 3.16 Son of God, Monongonese, only begotten, the unique one, no one else in this class. It is correct to affirm Jesus as God, period. Theos in Greek. Titus 2.13, we are waiting for our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Great God and Savior are the two titles. Titus applies to the name Christ Jesus. The Messiah is God, Titus wrote. In Peter's second epistle, he starts it off calling God, calling Jesus, quote, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, just reverses the two names. Colossians 2.9, Paul agreed by writing all the fullness of of deity, dwells in Christ in bodily form. It's the closest thing you can get into the Bible 
saying Jesus was God walking around in a body. Was Jesus self-aware? John 14, 9. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Anybody else that would say that, you take them out and stone them to death. But not him, because it's true. And I could give you so many statements that Christ made that only God could do. And for him saying he could do it would be blasphemy unless he was God. Such as when he claimed to forgive sins. Or John 5, where Jesus said, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whomever he wishes. I have the sovereign ability to grant everlasting life to anybody I want to. Nobody can say that except God. And so Peter honored the Son of God with the proper confession. You have heard it. You know it. For this confession, Jesus blessed Peter. What's so special about Peter? Actually, nothing. (laughs) Peter was not smarter. I think that's kind of the point when you read the Gospels before this and you realize this is just kind of an impulsive guy. And you're like, yep. But look at him. He wasn't more educated than anybody else, but listen to what he said. And so Jesus expressly states, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter. Flesh and blood is a Semitic expression for a human being. This, this did not get taught to you at school. You didn't learn this through human agency. It was revealed to you, Peter, and do you know who revealed it to you? It was my Father who's in heaven. Listen, knowing the truth about Jesus Christ's identity, even today, only comes through revelation. The word revelation, is a, the verb there is apocalypto. It's an aorist active verb showing that God did the revealing. Revelation in the scripture is the source of saving knowledge about Jesus. We should rejoice as well that God has revealed that truth to you and to me. This confession of Jesus brings you everlasting life as promised in John chapter 20 and verse 31. Just listen to these words. But these, John's gospel, has been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, there it is again, and that believing you may have life in his name. You can have life right now if you're unsure whether you have it or not. You can believe right now in your heart, Jesus is the Christ, just as the Bible says, just as the Christmas carols say. Jesus is the Son of God. Don't resist God when he's appealing to your heart. You can have life today, and don't delay till later. How do you know when you will pass from this world into the next? Today you can be saved. Just come to Christ today. Believe in Jesus. Believe in him as God's eternal Son, and he'll save you. He'll grant you life. That's the application you need to make of these verses. If you're already saved and you already know you believe this and you've already made this confession of Christ the way Peter did in Matthew 16, then we need to make sure that we are defending that confession, that we're not joining that confession with false ideas of Jesus today. And I think most of you probably are feeling, but I don't, Pastor. I've been been faithful to to not join this confession to others. But brothers and sisters, Satan is crafty. You have to be on your alert. One of the ways that 
that the truth gets eroded over time is people buddy up to people that they really like and respect for some other reason, and they begin to like them, and then they find out that person doesn't confess Jesus the way you confess Jesus. And now you already have a friendship or a relationship or a partnership in some way with that person, and it becomes harder for you to say, well, that other view is wrong. That's exactly what happens to believers. That's exactly how Satan operates. What do I mean? Well, I think he's just as crafty today as ever before. I think there are people that might even agree with the words, Jesus is the Son of God, and give it an entirely different definition than what you just heard. I would ask you, are you willing to distance yourself from religions or religious organizations that will not define Jesus clearly like this? They leave it kind of open-ended and allow their associations to be with those that would actually deny the deity of Jesus. You search their website, you look at their written stuff, you listen to their main spokespeople, and they never seem to make any of that clear. Are you comfortable in a relationship like that? I'm not. This is a foundational, necessary uh, conviction. Our church has always said that we divide a line from our association with other organizations based upon the gospel and the true Jesus. Because that's where our loyalty is. Well, where is your loyalty? Many today want to make the Mormons into just another denomination. You know, there's Baptist, there's Methodist, there's Presbyterian, and then there's Mormon. That's how they want you to think of their organization. It's just another denomination. Mitt Romney would have you believe that. He certainly thinks it that way. Mormons confess Jesus as the Son of God. They use the right terminology, but they mean something entirely different. They believe you and I can become exactly like that Son of God and populate our own planet one day, and that Jesus and Lucifer were once actually brothers, and a whole host of other wrong ideas that deny the unique sonship of Christ. In fact, if you really study the Mormon religion, they don't even really believe in one God. They're not monotheistic at all. The Jehovah Witnesses say that Jesus is the Son of God, but to them that just means he was a great angel created by God, not worthy of the same worship as Almighty Jehovah God. What happens when you start rooting for some famous athletes like the Williams sisters, or you hear some great singer and you just love their music, and now... Then you realize, oh, they're they're a Jehovah's Witness. What does that do to your loyalty? Can you still enjoy their sports play, but divorce your own loyalty from that? Are you able to do that? Or are you being drawn into, well, it can't be all that bad. Where's your mentality there? It doesn't happen with one or two little things. Someone whose music you're totally into and you're like, oh, this is the best. Then you find out they belong to what is a cult. How do you handle that? Today, there remains a very powerful and strong liberal church. I've talked about this before. I grew up in this church. Liberal teachers and pastors are not Christians. They use some of the same terminology. We sang O Holy Night in our church every Christmas, (laughs) but they meant something entirely different. Jesus was a good moral teacher, not the eternal God. Yeah, yeah, but Jesus claimed to come down out of heaven and all these other things. That's not a good moral teacher. That would be a liar. There are thousands of liberal preachers today. Some of them are on TV. Some of them say some things that are good. And they draw you in. 
because those five things seem good, but you study them and realize, wait a minute now. They don't believe Jesus is God. And they have affected both the white church, the black church, the Hispanic church. All those churches have been affected by the liberal movement. Back in the 1970s, there was a rock movie and play, Jesus Christ Superstar. Remember that, those of you that are older? Isn't that great? Jesus is a superstar. One of the most pathetic portrayals of Jesus I've ever seen. That did not honor Jesus. It dishonored Jesus. Jesus was always surprised at everything that was happening to him. Some these days relate to Jesus as some kind of a cosmic counselor, a kind of a, some have called a psychologized Jesus. He's all accepting. He never judges anybody. You feel better being around him. That's not good enough. I feel better being around Jesus too, but he's a lot more than that. He is to be worshipped as God in human flesh. God will not tolerate a low view of his son, and neither should we. Second John 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, talking about the Christ and the teachings that go with him, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. Talk about how strongly they rejected that. Modern Judaism <clears throat> continues to reject Jesus as divine. Remember that, and please be discerning if you listen to men like Ben Shapiro or Dennis Prager. They're Jews. They remember, they still continue to deny Jesus as Lord and God. That doesn't mean they have nothing good to say. I'm just saying, as you get into these things and as you open your mind to what others are teaching you, where do you draw the line in your loyalty? Do you understand who you're listening to? Do you understand that your mind understands truth better than their minds? Oprah Winfrey has repeatedly presented multiple pathways to God, never Jesus exclusively, according to her. You say, why am I bringing her up? Because she has much more influence on people's religious beliefs in our country now than just the local pastor like me. She has openly said numerous times that there's not just one way to God through Jesus. Then there's liberation theology that has impacted the Latino and Latin American church and to a certain degree the black church in certain portions of the civil rights movement as well. What's wrong with liberation theology? Liberation theology sees Jesus more like a Moses. Moses that gave a physical deliverance, uh, the physical deliverance that moved people out of slavery and into um, a life that would have physical blessings to where their economic oppression and where their political oppression would end, which with Jesus, ultimately, that is true. But when you listen for the description of a divine Savior coming down, dying on a cross for the sins of people, you only hear that with some of them, not with all of them, and you have to use discernment. Not all of them present the true gospel. And you may appreciate what someone has done to help you but you have to be loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ first and recognize you can appreciate people at a human level, but your loyalty is to Christ. And if they don't preach Christ as God, they're a false teacher. You have to affirm that. Your loyalty has to be with Christ. There's so many today from so many different angles that the modern church is being hit with. I didn't have time to get into the health and wealth Jesus. Maybe one of the most popular preachers today, Joel Osteen. 
and he's so soft-spoken. People love the nice things he says. But it's very similar to that that Moses-like Jesus. Bring the health, bring the wealth, bring the prosperity. You just need to believe it. That's the exercise of faith. You just need to, to confess it, and Jesus will bring it for you. That's not the true Jesus either. The application here for you is just where does your ultimate loyalty lie, brothers and sisters? Is it with the divine Lord Jesus and you are ready to die for him and reject any spokesperson, any movement, or any identity for yourself, whether it's religious or whether it's political or whether it's tied up in your family background with your mom and your dad, and you're willing to confess the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the divine one, and I live and I breathe and I die for him and him alone. That's where my loyalty is. That's the confession that Peter was making that would lead to Peter's death one day, you realize, where he requested, if church history is accurate on this, to be crucified how? Upside down, because he didn't want to be crucified like his Lord. He confessed him. He died for him. Brothers and sisters, as we confess him, and as we sing about him in our Christmas carols, let us also be ready and willing to die for he who died for us. Amen. Amen. Father, please take your word and drive it deep as nails into the hearts of your people. We pray it in the mighty name of your divine son. Amen.